All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm talking to you from New York City on the 15th of September, 2020. I do want to remind you, I publish a newsletter, and its focus is primarily on the mining shares. Uh, it's Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And miningstocks.com is where you can go for that. Uh, to sign up for that, Chen Lin's uh, letter. Chen just uh, scored big on another biotech, I understand, this week. Uh, he's doing extremely well in the biotechs. He also does well with energy stocks and uh, and the mining shares as well. What is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? Go to chenpicks.com for that. And Michael Oliver, it's olivermsa.com. We'll talk, be talking to Michael in just a moment. Uh, but to follow Michael, olivermsa.com. Uh, Dot com, And thanks to all of you for listening, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. I want to thank you uh, also and encourage you to continue sending along your comments f- to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions at number four, Taylor at gmail.com. And we do need to thank our sponsors because without them, there would be no show. Envy Gold, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Sitka Gold Corp, Lion One Metals, Grand Partage, and GMV Minerals are our sponsors for this week's show. Before I begin talking about today's show, I do want to remind you that Investing 101 in the gold, silver, and the mining shares is scheduled to launch on October 1st. And to find out more about that course and what it's what's involved in it, you can go to course.miningstocks.com, course.miningstocks.com. This course is meant for investors that are new to the precious metals environment and to the mining shares environment. Uh, and uh, But if you go to course.miningstocks.com, uh, there's a list of the syllabus. Uh, there's a syllabus there that lists the topics that are discussed as well as a short video uh, that also explains what uh, Investing 101 Gold, Silver, and the Miners is all about. Today's show is titled Prospects for the Dollar's Collapse. Dmitry Orlov is back after uh, a long uh, hiatus. He was with us last in 2014. Michael Oliver um, is back again after a, a one week's absence. And Dr. Quentin Henning uh, rounds out the guest list today. In 2014, Dmitry Orlov discussed five stages of collapse in the USSR and how the U.S. was following a similar path toward destruction. In 2019, Dmitry opined that the last nail in the U.S. coffin would be a humiliating military defeat that would take the dollar and the U.S. down. 
Does Dimitris move back to his native Russia, which he just recently moved to back to Russia after living in the United States for quite a few years? Does that suggest he thinks the timing of America's collapse is close at hand and that the future is brighter in Russia than the United States? That seems hard for us Americans to believe. Uh, but uh, you could say that Dimitri may have voted with his feet. Those and, and some other questions we hope to get answers to from Dimitri uh, in the second half of today's show. And with gold approaching 2,000 per ounce, the timing couldn't be better for Novo Resources to commence gold production on its Beaton Creek project in Western Australia. Now, that, now the company has now secured a mill, uh, and I do know that Dr. Henning is very optimistic about the margins, the, the operating margins for this project, as he has explained before. But we'll hear more from him today uh, in the second right in the second segment, right after our first commercial break. But I'm happy to tell you that right now, Michael Oliver is back with us again. OliverMSA.com. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. It's always good to have you here, and I know that you have uh, voted with your feet to a certain extent by going out to Colorado, I believe, somewhere. You found a, a fairly rural area, and it's interesting to note in chatting with uh, Dmitry Orloff, I, I suppose that he would. Uh, think that you may have made the right move, but uh, we'll we'll hear what Dimitri has to say about that a little later. Um, you mentioned in some notes to me this morning that the virus is taking attention away from the swirly underway. I'm not sure. I mean, you you use very colorful language. That you paint word pictures that make your writing interesting for sure, Michael. But what do you mean by a swirly? Well, uh, if you go back to Let's start with Lyndon Baines Johnson, the war on poverty. If you go for, if you visualized a totem pole, okay, mm-hmm. with two snakes writhing around the pole and rising up the pole, one being Democrat mm-hmm. Party, one Republican, <laughs> the rise, the ascendancy of statism, soft, uh-huh. quote, loving, end quote, statism, uh-huh. has increased since then. We're talking 50 years now, roughly. Uh, where that process has been underway, regardless of the intrusion of a few obstacles maybe put in the way by Reagan, and Trump likes to claim that he's you know, cut regulations and so forth, which is, can be offset by another argument entirely, what he's done to monetary integrity. Uh, uh-huh. But the process has been underway toward soft state socialism in the United States. Well, that has economic consequences, because when you tell people what to do rather than allowing them to decide what they want to do, assuming it's non-aggressive, you interfere with thought processes. You homogenize people. It's called Mm -hmm. coercive homogenization, is what Mm -hmm. I call it. Uh, And that leads to economic pitfalls frequently, like little heart attacks. And we've had them, if you go back to the 70s, about every 20 years, and now suddenly they're occurring about every 10 years. You know, the stock market will crash, we'll go into a deep recession, central bank will come in, they'll print all kinds of money, uh, you know, and try to get us out, which is to say, do more of what they did before. So the cycle just keeps repeating. But now it's re- it's it, it's in a rapid, more rapid pace. I argue. I can mm-hmm. see this in the technicals, things like gold. I think we're about to have a major upturn in food prices. We see it in the grains. Well, I think the stock market has been topping. Don't be deluded by the Nasdaq 100, which is deceptive because of about five stock symbols that comprise the. 48% of the front end of that index, mm-hmm. and they're now in trouble as well. So I think the, the COVID virus, it, 
it, it diluted people into thinking, oh, that's the only problem. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. don't see the bigger trend swirly unwinding. And, uh, you know, R- Russia went through this. I mean, they, they lasted, what, 70 years? Right. Uh, they're great, the great experiment. And then in, in the mid to late 1980s, it, it came unwound. Just whoosh. It's almost yeah. over. Uh, you know, in terms of the state socialist aspect, uh, you might have a dictator there in Putin, but you don't have a totalitarian. There's a bit of a difference, <laughs> quite mm-hmm. a bit of a difference, mm-hmm. where he doesn't control all aspects of your life. I think, what's their flat tax rate, Jay? Oh, 17%. It was a, a few years ago, anyway, and I, I'm I saying I would love a 17% flat yeah. tax. And it wouldn't be wonderful. Me that that Russia would and China are the first countries to come out with a gold-backed currency. Yep. You know, well, they're all they're all trying to. Yeah, that that could very well be. I I think we may get some remarks from Dimitri on that. I'm hoping so. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the, all this has to do with markets too, but it's not just markets themselves. It's not just COVID. It's a big broader picture of unwinding, and I think that the Fed is now committed to total destruction. Uh, in terms of what they're willing to do to distort pricing in order to keep certain edifices up, like the stock market or the mm-hmm. bond mar- uh, corporate bond market, the junk debt market that they're buying into, uh, that they're willing to go to any extreme at this point. And I think that's an indication. Powell's tone of voice, his nervousness, is evident of what I'm talking about. He knows the swirly's coming. But he doesn't know the answer. He thinks more of the same is the answer. And mm-hmm. I think that's going to ultimately unravel. And I think it's going to unravel quickly. I go with the chaos theorist on this. Incrementalism we may have seen for the last 50 years of a trend in one direction with heart attacks along the way. When it comes unraveled, if the error process is exposed and all the malinvestments come to the fore like debt, uh, mm-hmm. it, won't take, it won't be an incremental decline. It will be a rapid ripping apart. And mm-hmm. I think gold knows this. I think you're about to see uh, that sort of behavior from the commodity asset category. And I think the stock market has uh, falsely deluded itself into thinking, oh, we can go up if they find a cure for COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, I frankly think if they found a cure, you could, you could short the market within about a week. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it was right. an irrelevant issue. It was well, just a, a temporary thing that exposed the underlying swirly that's underway. Yeah, well, then people would have to start looking at the reality, the market realities, and instead of uh, COVID, I suppose. Well, Michael, if we're about to see inflation, we're about to see rising commodity prices, which I know you've been bullish on for some time. Do we need to see the dollar then in a in a decline? And and where do you see the dollar right now? What are your technicals telling you about the dollar? The dollar is, um, as far as we were concerned topped in uh, May of 2017 at a price of 99 on the dollar index. That's when it broke all of our parameters. It, mm-hmm. it subsequently dropped another uh, 10, 11 points down to about 88 dollar index. Came all the way back up recently to 103 near its high that it made in 2016-17 and is now back down in the 95, 94, 93, 92 area. And yes. we're trading, I think, between 92 and 93 right now. Uh, We've got some numbers at 91 applicable all year. If you hit it, we think we'll just go ahead and it it will shed quite a few points at that time. But if we roll into next year and the dollar hovers around where it is now into next year, the number that will break it down the next leg will rise up to the market such that if you're loitering anywhere around where you are now, expect the next dramatic leg in the dollar. Or it Mm -hmm. could occur between now and year end. I'm not sure which, but Mm -hmm. I do think it will occur. Now, 
that's really not a leading indicator because if you look at gold, gold since the 2018 secondary low, which is in the 1160s, has risen to over $2,000. And yet the dollar didn't contribute to that. Dollar yes. weakness did not. So if you're waiting on the dollar to say, okay, all this other stuff's going to happen, well, it's sort of a laggard in a way. Yeah. Uh, and yes, I think it will create drama, and that will be wind at the back of gold and also mm-hmm. of commodity prices mm-hmm. when it occurs. Yeah. What about, uh, Michael, what about if, if we get a, a weaker dollar then, does that put pressure on, the, on interest rates? Does the Fed have to start printing more? Uh, I'm more? looking for the, the, the government bond market, not, not to be confused yeah. with junk bond, corporate bond. Right. The right. government bond market to have one more price surge, one more drop in rates. It could be dramatic, and I suspect it will be connected to a down leg in the stock market. Now, I don't mean a crash, but a, a, a sharp down leg in the stock market from, from these probably around these levels. However, once the bonds do that one more time, I think that may be the end of the bond market on the upside in terms of long-term yields on the, on the downside. And at that point, T-bonds will be affected by the inflation that they see around them, mm-hmm. and meaning higher yields. Mm-hmm. And, of course, now, how would the stock market interpret higher yields? Right. <laughs> okay. Well, one, uh, one just wonders, though, if the, if the Fed won't just absolutely just, with a deluge of money printing, just force the interest rates lower so they can't go up and then confidence is lost in the dollar, possibly? Well, yes. Yeah, that, that I mean, and nobody, and, and nobody also, but the, you know, the, the kind of inflation they want is like 2% plus. Well, you know, dream on. Yeah. Uh, we argued that the Bloomberg Commodity Index has some numbers above it that as of next quarter, which is to say how many trading days away, if you're trading the Bloomberg Commodity Index up around 73.5, which is where it traded last month, if you trade back up to that level next quarter, uh, mm-hmm. you're likely to take the lid off and, and take the Bloomberg up to about 110. Well, mm-hmm. you do the percentages on that. Right. And, and who's going to want a dollar? 110, yeah. you know, it's yeah. huge. It's a huge percent move. That's yeah. not 2%. So, yeah, and uh, who's going to want to own the dollar if, if you can't get any rates, any rates of return? Correct. So correct. it's got to, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really. So with the 30 seconds or so left here, Michael, you, you, what do you think about the tech stocks? Because you wrote an article this weekend. Uh, you said um, uh, the whoosh has begun, and you were talking about mm-hmm. Apple and some of the other big-name tech think they, companies. I you, think they may have topped. Okay, in other words, the Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple, those are the three we're most focused on. Uh, in fact, we put out a report on the top day of the S&P and of the NASDAQ uh, saying that if they dropped uh, – below certain levels the following day or two, and they did the next few days they dropped, Mm -hmm. it would trigger an intermediate-term downturn. Well, Mm -hmm. it was actually sharper than we expected. And I think that that might, you can, I I think you can circle that high. Mm -hmm. I think it was September 2nd, and probably that was the top. Now, Mm -hmm. then the question is, okay, fine, what does it mean about decline, when? And that's a a more debatable issue in terms of the speed and so forth. But I think you've got to watch, instead of the S&P, watch Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft. And I think as those three go, the world goes. Okay, we're going to have to leave it go at that, Michael. Thank you so much for your insights. Always appreciated. Um, Thank you, Lots of things to keep an eye on. Thank you. Well, folks, we are going to break now, but don't go away. Dr. Quentin Anning of Novo Resources will be with us to talk about plans for going into production. Novo Resources in Q1 of 2021. We'll be right back with Dr. Henning.
Renewable Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dr. Quentin Henning. He is uh, heads up Novo Resources. That's a company, of course, that's very familiar to all of our listeners. That's a company that I think most mining investors simply don't really understand all that well because it is a very unique project, very unique. Uh, it is massive. I believe it's very, very large. Uh, the overall picture is, is, is quite uh, quite fascinating and really important, I think, for investors to stay tuned to what's going on. So I'm really pleased to have Dr. Quentin Henning with me once again. Thanks for joining me, Quentin. Thank you very much, Jay. It's always good to talk to you. I, I should mention to our listeners, NVO is a symbol in Toronto, uh, NSRPF in the U.S., which is a symbol that I buy it under, uh, $2.00. 56 cents thereabouts in U.S. money, market cap a little under a half a billion dollars. Well, Dr. Quentin uh, Henning, your your um, efforts uh, have been mostly involved since you made this massive discovery in Western Australia of conglomerate gold. It's been mostly uh, it's been mostly involved. You know, you've been discovering and and trying to figure out how to how to mine, how to assay, how to. Uh, appraise the economic value of this deposit, uh, and you've been working on it for a number of years, made a lot of progress in a number of different ways, but now you're ready to start mining at the, the first of three major areas that you've discovered, and that's Beaton's Creek. Talk to us about your plans for Beaton's Creek right now. Uh, certainly. Look, uh, as you said, we, we started working here in Western Australia at a very conceptual level. You know, it was predicated on the notion the the uh, conglomerate gold deposits here might be akin to, to stuff we would see as far away as South Africa, which, you know, at one time was probably connected to, to the Pilbara Craton. You know, some similarities, certainly, but also some differences. We have conglomerates that are very coarse grain. You know, we have uh, bouldery conglomerates. And the other thing that we see is quite coarse grain is, is the gold itself. You know, so this is nuggety gold mineralization. Um, we, we started to recognize that early on working here at Beaton's Creek. You know, Beaton's is as you said, one of um, actually many uh, conglomerate gold projects we have across the Pilbara. So it's just it's really where we we uh, first started working. It was an area where uh, there was some historic mining, mainly modern alluvial mining. Uh, but uh, we could see the conglomerates, you know, sticking out of the ground, multiple layers. 
uh, by and large flat deposits. Okay, these are conglomerates that are flat. And geologically, we were able to put together a picture of what was going on. Uh, one of the more interesting things about Beaton's Creek is that uh, the deposits are quite sheet-like, quite extensive. Uh, these deposits are not channelized or, you know, localized alluvial, you know, paleo-alluvial deposits. They are ex- uh, very extensive. And uh, that, you know, that makes them very vit water ran like, uh, you know, the vits, as many people know, uh, have conglomerates that were mined in some cases for many kilometers along strike. Okay, so that's important because, you know, it's hard to mine something that's small, erratic, you know, so forth. Uh, but we, we put, put together a, a geological model that said, hey, this uh, area should be underlain by extensive sheet-like deposits. Uh, we, we proved that up through our, our drilling and, and costing and our, our trench sampling and so forth. And we also, uh, you know, employed uh, elements of bulk sampling to, to really quantify the grade. As we learned that the, the mineralization was quite nuggety, we knew that we had to take bulk samples, something that would underpin uh, a solid resource. And we did that. You know, Beaton's Creek is really where we proved up the protocols and, and so forth that we've used uh, going forward. We now have a very solid resource, about 900,000 ounces, uh, half indicated, half inferred. It's about, you know, it's over 2 grams, probably a weighted average, about 2.4 gram per ton. Uh, it's a great deposit. It's flat lying right at surface, and we are now basically in a position to go mine it. Okay, so so we have been working very hard, not only on the geology and, and getting the mine permit in line for Beaton's Creek, but you know, obviously through this transaction, we've had uh, our sights on uh, acquiring the nearby Millennium Mill, uh, which uh, now allows us to move the project into uh, a production mode. Okay, so we've completed the deal. We announced that on, I believe, Tuesday of this week. And we are full steam ahead. I mean, we have a, we're building our team. We have a lot of work going on right now. You know, we're not taking this, uh, lightly by any stretch. We're actually doing work on the plant, on the camps, facilities and so forth right now. We're trying to get everything up so that we can, uh, up to speed so we can get this thing into production as fast as possible. All right. So how did, how did it happen? This mill becomes available, which is really, I believe, very, very important to the economics and getting you moving towards production more quickly, right? But how did that become available? Yeah, look, uh, the company that uh, operated the mill, Millennium Minerals, uh, they, they had been producing since, I believe, September of 2012, somewhere thereabouts. Uh, they're focused on a different type of ore deposit, different type of gold deposit in the uh, nearby area. Okay, so they were mining uh, what we call load deposits. They're you know, near vertical quartz vein systems, and they were mining these things via open pits. So they were mining small, shallow open pits. Uh, over a, a strike length of something like 30 or 40 kilometers, you know, little pits scattered over a very long distance. They were trucking that ore back to their mill, uh, and they they did okay. I mean, while while they were into good oxide mineralization, they actually did quite well for a time. But uh, as time went on, uh, they found that the sulfide material below, or the fresh material, unoxidized material below, uh, was semi-refractory to refract, and the metallurgy became more complex. So uh, basically, the company recognized they had to do something uh, to be Build up, uh, you know, to, to, to add additional life. So they attempted to, to treat the sulfide ore through, we'll call it an innovative technique. Unfortunately, you know, it just didn't have uh, enough science behind it or enough. They didn't have enough lead time, I guess, uh, is basically the, the best way to put it, to, to work out their issue. So last year when they went to mine the sulfide, they simply did not uh, accomplish a profitable operation. And uh, uh, they went into receivership uh, or administration in November, I believe, 
last year, roughly a little over a year, or a little less than a year ago. Mm-hmm. Well, by contrast, though, you're you're looking at very considerable continuity, I believe, in a grade on surface, not a vertically uh, orientated deposit, but a flat lying pretty near surface or right on surface, actually, uh, almost anyway, with a 2.4 gram per ton grade, which is really you know quite high for a lot of operations like this, and a you know open cut, uh, open surface mining, right? Should it it should bode well, I would think, especially. Um, with grades, uh, you know, with the gold price at 1900 thereabouts, and uh, and also the fact that it's uh, not refractory, or it's really, uh, I believe, mostly oxides, right? That's right. Yeah. Let's uh, let's kind of pick this apart in a bit more detail. So the the mineralization, as you said, is not refractory. It's not tied up in sulfides. The gold is free milling, and that goes not only for our oxide mineralization, but our fresh mineralization underneath. So both ore types or both mineralization types are amenable to uh, treatment at this mill. Okay, the mill, uh, just so people know, is, has been operating at about 1.88 million ton per annum uh, over the past several years. Okay, so it's, you know, demonstrable throughput of about just under 1.9 million tons per year. That's great. Uh, we're hoping we can operate at that level. Okay, uh, we do think that our ore, given that we don't need to grind it so fine, that we should be able to achieve that kind of throughput, or, you know, with a little luck, maybe even higher. Than that, okay. So, so that's one aspect. Uh, you know, we have a great deposit that's metallurgically compatible and also uh, commensurately sized with the mill that we have in in our company now. Okay, so let's look at the other aspects. Okay, Beaton's Creek, as you said, is flat lying, and and really it's comprised of a stack of conglomerates. So you have uh, conglomerates. Sometimes there's low grade in between. We're looking at how we can, um, you know, capture some of that lower grade material. Obviously, gold price is high, so there's more opportunity for those kind of things. But really what we have are a sequence of layers you know, in some places up to say six layers in, in, uh, you know, in, in place one after another. So we're going to mine these things much like a, a layer cake. Think of a tabletop coal mining in, you know, West Virginia or somewhere. It's of that ilk. Okay. So this is, you know, cheap, uh, easy mining. Uh, this is a very, very straightforward operation in many respects. Okay, uh, so we know that, you know, from our trial mining experience and so forth, this should be a fairly straightforward exercise. Okay, now let's look at, uh, let's look at Millennium's operation. They were mining small pits. They were mining multiple pits. You know, there's a, a lot of added costs associated with operating multiple pits at one time. You know, you have, you know, you have to distribute your overheads, uh, for each operation in those cases. In, in Beaton's Creek, at Beaton's Creek, we have one basic one mine. Okay, so our, all, all our mineralization is coming out of one site. That's a big plus. That's a big plus. Okay, but nonetheless, Millennium has been able to operate in the Nulligan camp. You know, we'll call it for you can look at their quarterly reports. Over the past, um, say, six or seven years, uh, they've been operating at around maybe 135, 140 million Australian dollars all in, you know, like all costs associated with the operation, sustaining capital, so forth. So that gives you an impression of what what we might, you know, this is, uh, look, we do not have our economic study yet, be very clear, but uh, it's, you know, it's a goal that we're shooting for. Okay, so so that's a great outcome. So uh, now what's the best part? Grade. I'm, I mean, my gosh, you know, the grades we have at Beaton's Creek are very good. You know, as I said earlier, you know, weighted average grades, probably around 2.4 grams. You know, with a little luck, you know, that nugget effect, you know, one of the benefits of the nugget effect is oftentimes when you go to mine something and the nuggets start popping out because you're mining a larger tonnage than you're sampling, uh, you often see a bit of a kick in, in gold. Well, yeah, we can't say that, you know, we cannot guarantee that, of course. We cannot 
any stretch, but you know, with a little luck, we might see a bump like that. So, so what am I saying? We got free milling, higher grade mineralization. We can achieve, I think, readily achieve the throughput that uh, Millennium was seeing through that mill. Uh, we we have a simple deposit, you know, it's a one single deposit that has to be mined, and then we we have a pretty good understanding of the costs associated with operating in the Nullagine camp. Okay, this, these are the ingredients that I see will make a, a very high margin, very good deposit, very good mine. And, uh, you know, now we the, the most important part, the people. We have the team to do it. No, that's always an important thing, that's for sure. And uh, w- with a minute left or so here, Quentin, can you give us an idea how this fits into the bigger picture? Because, as I said, you have three major areas and three different types of conglomerate gold deposits that that are really very very attractive and they're and they're huge i mean we don't know i mean the size is just enormous this is what impresses me about your project it's not just beaton's creek although beaton's creek has a lot of extra upside as well around beaton's creek and other areas close to it but you have caratha and then you have Egina, those two areas uh in addition and so what does this mill mean potentially for the bigger picture Certainly. Look, uh, this mill really helps us unlock a lot of that value. We have a huge land holding, somewhere just shy of 14,000 square kilometers. We have projects as far away as 400 kilometers. Okay, Karatha, for example, where Comet Well and Purdy's reward. We have coarse gold. As everyone knows, we are moving towards a trial mining phase there, and we're going to use the mechanical sorter. In fact, we got photographs of it yesterday. They are uh, getting near to, to complete of uh, the build and then ship, shipping it shortly. Uh, and once we get that on site, we can test it out. If, if we can produce a high-grade concentrate from Karatha, we can ship that over to the mill and simply add that feed into the stream. Okay, that, that's a big sweetener. That's a big gain for us. That alone could add considerable production for us. Okay, now the other thing, you know, uh, we've got – Projects in the Nullagine area that have not been advanced anywhere near the state of Beaton's Creek, but now we can do that. Now we have incentive to do that. We've picked up land recently. We've cleared out the Creasy Joint Venture. We can expand Beaton's Creek. We can explore our new, our, our next series of deposits in the Nullagine camp. Those will come into the picture. And then finally, uh, the cash flow from this operation, we do anticipate being able to accelerate our work at Edgina. Of course, Edgina is a very big project for us. Uh, we've been doing work in the background. You know, of course, this transaction has kept us very, very busy. But, you know, now, uh, now that the announcement's been put out around this, we can get back to talking to our market about all the wonderful uh, work and news and so forth that we have from these other projects. I think people will see very quickly how we're going to bolt everything together and really uh, show how this mill, that this acquisition, helps us unlock and build a foundation for Novo to become a, a significant mid-tier producer going forward. All right. What news might we look for next? You know, look over the next few months until we, we, we anticipate going into production, like actually producing first quarter next year. Okay, so in the meantime, we plan to update people regularly on progress around bolting everything together, you know, how, how things are going in, in that regard. But we'll also put out uh, news around Edgina uh, results, for example, as well as uh, some other exploration we're starting to do now that we're, we're reckon, you know, we can unlock that value. We're, we're starting to target some new things. So I think 
it's a very exciting time. It's really a growth phase. We'll have lots of news, both in expiration and moving this thing towards production. All right. Terrific. Well, thank you very much again for being with us, uh, Quentin, and uh, we'll look to keep up with you, no doubt, in the future. Thank you so much. Well, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away. Dmitry Orloff will be with me to talk about his view of what's happening in the United States politically and economically, and he is looking at through the eyes of one who watched the demise of the Soviet Union, where he lived during that time. It should be very important, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Dmitry Orloff. Voice America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. NV Gold Core, trading under NVX on the TSX and NVGLF on the OTC, is a gold exploration company focused on uncovering the next multi million ounce gold deposit in North America. With an aggressive exploration season ahead in 2020, a tight share structure, strong management ownership, key strategic investors including Eric Sprott, a globally recognized technical team, technical coverage from industry gold experts, and cash in its treasury. Visit NVGoldCore.com to learn more on this exciting story. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and the Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again, Dmitry Orloff. Dmitry was born and grew up in Leningrad, but has lived in the United States. Uh, he moved here since in the mid-70s. Uh, he has since gone back to Russia, where he is living now. But Dmitry was an eyewitness to the Soviet collapse over several extended visits to his Russian homeland between the 80s and the mid-90s. He is an engineer who has contributed to fields as diverse as high-energy physics and Internet security, as well as a leading peak oil theorist. He is the author of Reinventing Collapse, published in 2008, The Soviet Example and American Prospects, and The Five Stages of Collapse, Survivor's Toolkit, and that was in 2013. Welcome, Dimitri, and thank you so much for joining us again. Great to be on your program again, Jay. It's really good to hear your voice. Um, I know we had you on back in 2014. It's been a long time, way too long as far as I'm concerned. In that discussion, you talked about the five stages of collapse that you observed in the fall of the USSR. Could you review them perhaps very quickly and compare them with what you're seeing and what you have witnessed and observed in the United States uh, as you lived here and, of course, from your post down in uh, in Russia? Uh, yes, the five stages of collapses, uh, I defined them, were uh, financial, commercial, political, uh, social, and cultural. 
Um, and uh, I observed that the first three in Russia uh, where basically the, the finance collapsed because Russia, uh, the Soviet Union, basically ran out of money. Uh, commercial collapse happened because uh, industry, Soviet industry, fell apart because it's, it was distributed amongst 15 Soviet socialist republics. And when the Soviet Union fell apart, all of these supply chains broke down. Political collapse, obviously, um, there wasn't really a functional government at all for a period of time in the 90s. Uh, lots of American consultants running around and privatizing things uh, uh, in, in a fashion that created a lot of uh, incredibly corrupt, super-rich oligarchs mm -hmm. uh, that then fled with their money, a lot of them. Uh, and then, surprisingly, social and cultural collapse didn't really uh, get very far until Russia started uh, uh, regaining its health. Uh, some of the uh, other Soviet socialist republics uh, are in the throes of full-on social and cultural collapse, but Russia uh, avoided this fate. Now, what's happening in the United States right now is uh, the, the financial realm has become this incredible Potemkin village. Uh, the Americans are running this uh, completely unprecedented experiment where they basically uh, are blowing the hugest financial bubbles they possibly could in just about everything, in, in uh, obviously in finance itself, but also in, in medicine, in real estate, um, uh, the stock market, and all of that is directly connected to the printing press. The printing press in the United States now monetizes half of the entire federal spending. Um, and the United States borrows uh, every year now borrows twice the amount of money uh, it, that the federal government earns in a year. So basically, this, this thing looks like it's gone off the rails and is uh, heading straight into a ravine. But uh, for now, this is just being papered over with this fake printed money. And the, the big surprise as far as the, the sequence of uh, collapse stages uh, in the United States is that social and cultural collapse have already happened. Mm -hmm. That is, the United States, from a social and cultural perspective, are pretty much 100% defunct. There is no getting back to normal. And, and so uh, once the financial realm goes and uh, it becomes impossible to continue importing everything that the United States needs, which is just about everything at this point, because the U.S. doesn't really make very much of anything anymore, um, you know, the, 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 the other stages of collapse will swiftly follow and as far as political collapse, well, we have to wait until the November elections to, to see how that's going to turn out. Yeah, there's a lot of concern about that here, for sure, about uh, what things might look like. Either way, whoever wins the election, there's concerns about what's going on. That social uh, collapse and lack of, um, lack of, of seeing things together as a nation is, is dividing us. It's... Uh, it's really nothing like I've seen in my life. Well, Dimitri, you know, since Nixon, you know, since he removed gold from the dollar back in 1971, uh, and by extension the international monetary system, uh, that allowed the United States then to start printing money, as you pointed out. The U.S. is un unprecedented. Modern monetary theory now, I suppose, is in, is in play. Uh, that, along with the U.S. military, we Kissinger went off and signed a deal with 
Saudi Arabia and basically guaranteeing that all the world's oil at that time would be paid for in dollars. Um, and then, you know, when you think about all the countries around the world that have to import oil, that meant that virtually every country in the world needed to find dollars. That put a bid under the dollar and allowed the dollar to be a strong, quote-unquote, strong currency, even though it had nothing backing it. Uh, but as you point out, the U.S. is now having to borrow. I think, I think most everything it's borrowing, all of, the, all of its deficit spending is being financed by printing money because foreigners are no longer the extent they were anyway, buying treasuries. So do you see do you see the possibility of the dollar losing its hegemony and giving way to some other form of currency? Well, uh, yes. Uh, the, the other forms of currency already exist. Lots of countries are, uh, are trading using uh, commodity exchanges and, and currency swaps. So a lot of countries really just don't need the dollar. Uh, Iran, for instance, doesn't use the dollar at all to sell its oil, which it does. Um, and uh, it's a major oil producer. Uh, other countries will follow suit. Uh, now, the thing about uh, making uh, the dollar, quote-unquote, attractive, uh, really has to do with the, the ability of Washington to to overthrow regimes it doesn't like in various parts of the world, to basically scare everyone into submission. But now, if you look at where the revolts are happening, uh, the more or less successful revolts, well, they're happening in France. They're happening in Bulgaria, which is part of the EU. Um, huge, huge demonstrations in Berlin. Uh, and, of course, various cities in, within the United States itself are now basically ablaze. Um, and, you know, there's permanent uh, revolt happening in various parts of the world. So this is chickens coming home to roost. And, and the collective West is no longer an entity that, that can scare the rest of the world into submission. Um, and that coupled with the fact that, you know, they, the, the dollar is, is being debased at an ever-increasing rate through uh, money printing and deficit financing, um, basically means that this, this is going to end very abruptly the way pyramid schemes generally do within a, a single news cycle. Yeah, uh, it's interesting to note, from my perspective, uh, that China is the largest gold producer now in the world. They don't export any of their gold. They keep it for themselves. Russia is also a very substantial gold producer, and I noticed from what I can from what I can see, both countries are building their gold reserves very dramatically. Do you think that that is a policy, uh, given their lack of con their lack of confidence or their their view that the dollar's days are numbered? Well, Russia no longer has any dollar reserves at all. Mm -hmm. uh, it it's uh, opted for gold. Um, China is getting rid of its uh, U.S. treasuries at an ever increasing rate. Um, and the plan is to basically have uh, uh, trade conducted not in the dollar but in the country's own currencies using uh, various types of uh, uh, currency swap agreements backed by gold. This is how international trade was, was done before. Um, it, until the U.S. dollar came off the gold standard, uh, it was basically various currencies, uh, you know, the Mexican silver dollar, things like that, 
that were backed by by metal. Uh, so we're we're back to that scheme, and this is perfectly normal. So we'll we'll be able to look back on this uh, curious interlude from the 70s until 2021, perhaps. Uh, look back on it as an aberration. Yeah, it certainly has been. Uh, I mean, the idea, of course, with an international gold-backed system, you have a, a more of an even playing field. In this case, the United States has been able to use its military strength coming out of World War II uh, and, and its um, you know, other advantages that it had at that time to, to basically dictate to the rest of the world. But, I mean, we were already living beyond our means to pay for the Vietnam War and the start of socialism in the United States, or say an extension of socialism under President Johnson, we were already uh, living beyond our means. And of course, the gold was leaving, and De Gaulle of France won his gold, and he was entitled to it under Bretton Woods. Uh, but then we decided that we were we were the bully, I guess. We were the big. We were the we were the country that had the power and the ability to to dictate to others what to do, and that's what Nixon did, Nixon and Kissinger. And so now, uh, yeah, it, it seems as though we've used our power. I think countries that wouldn't accept the dollar in trade were, were vulnerable, right? Uh, Qaddafi and before that uh, in Iraq. So um, That's right. But, but the United States has now run, uh, run, run out of um, countries that it could attack uh, with impunity that are sufficiently rich, to be looted and sufficiently weak so that they could be attacked militarily without uh, huge casualties, huge losses. And the thing about the U.S. military is that it is willing to kill, but it is not willing to die. The United States is completely out of people who are willing to die for other people's money. Yeah. Well, I mean, we saw the turning point, I think, in the Vietnam War when the young people uh, resisted. We've had a pretty good life here in the United States for quite a while, and I guess we've softened up to the point where um, that, that that's taken place. I would just observe, uh, Dimitri, that historically gold flows to countries that are prof that are doing well, that are gaining well, and they, it flows away from countries when they're in trouble, when they're when they're running into financial trouble. I mean, I think of the USSR, for example in its closing days, and its waning days, was, I believe, using its gold to try to prolong uh, the regime at that point in time. So do you, could you say that, that things are really definitely improving in Russia? And, and since you've moved back there now, what are your thoughts about Russia, the Russian economy, and the Chinese economy, both those countries building up their gold reserves? Uh, what are things really like in Russia? Because what we hear here, you know, what we hear, we hear nothing about except... Putin is evil, he's poisoning people that want to compete with him politically and so on and so forth. But what, tell us, paint a picture of what things are like in Russia now, economically, because we're certainly not getting a straight story here. Well, uh, Russia is uh, a society, a culture that thrives on adversity. Uh, it kind of goes along with the huge territory and, and the harsh climate, but the Russians, they don't they don't do very well when things are fine, but when they're confronted with a situation that they have to do something about, suddenly uh, it turns out that they're uh, incredibly active and, uh, and incredibly effective. And this is what's been happening. Um, basically, the 1990s uh, have convinced Russians that things can't go on as they have before. Uh, when Putin came to power, he started making changes. 
and the transformation of Russian society and, and Russian culture, I would say, has been very thorough. So that, for instance, Russia was notorious for its bad roads. Well, now most of the roads in Russia are basically up to the German Autobahn standard. Um, uh, it, it used to have really bad cars, but now Russia makes all of its own cars, virtually all of it, and makes lots of cars for export. It's just that, that the brand names are Western or, uh, or Japanese or Korean brand names, but they're all made in Russia. Interesting. Um, and um, because of the sanctions regime, um, the sanctions regime has been an absolute blessing to Russia because it has forced Russia to start making everything that it needed on its own territory. So now it makes its own jet aircraft, for instance. Uh, it make, made itself pretty much immune to, uh, to those sorts of sanctions. And the latest thing that Russia is doing is basically getting rid of the necessity to export oil and gas because instead of exporting raw materials, Russia is going to make all of the products, for instance, all of the plastics that it needs. So it will stop importing plastics and will instead, instead of exporting gas, for instance, it'll be exporting plastics hmm. and other products made with, with these, uh, the, these resources. Now, this does not bode well for all of the countries in the world that depend on continued Russian raw materials exports. Basically, uh, a lot of industry in, in Europe is, basic, is, is going to shut down. It's going to have to shut down uh, because of Russia doing it. But in terms of politics, uh, Russia has a very effective government that is quite popular. Uh, the elections that were just held, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, the, the government candidates uh, from the main uh, party um, won comfortably. Putin wins with something like 73, 75% of the vote. Mm -hmm. um, the next candidate after Putin is somebody by the name of Zhirinovsky, who's been in politics for a really long time. He's pretty old these days, uh, but he's, he's head of the Liberal Democratic Party. Um, he gets something like 7% of the vote. Why? Because Putin is not enough of a Russian nationalist. Mm -hmm. and, and then everybody else, including figures like Navalny, which, uh, if you read the New York Times, is uh, Russia's premier opposition candidate or something like that. Yeah. Well, he... He has maybe 2% of the insanity vote, you know. Mm -hmm. Basically, you know, the people who vote for him are people who believe in reptiloids from planet Nibiru and people like that. And then the permanently disgruntled. So there's no hope for him at all. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that's, the, that's the position in Russia now. Uh, Russia didn't really suffer um, from the uh, financial crisis uh, of 2019. It didn't really uh, suffer any great consequences uh, economically uh, from, from the, the coronavirus, the fake coronavirus scare. Um, some measures here were taken, but again, uh, it, along, along the lines of thriving in adversity, the, the need to work from home has, in Russia, generated uh, a lot of these new arrangements uh, that, that make it possible to work from, from home, and it turns out that uh, one of the biggest problems with uh, Russian corporations is that a lot of their staff, staff is in Moscow. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, now, because of the coronavirus, a lot of their staff is moving back to Russian provinces where life is cheap and good. And and 
places that are uncrowded because, because they can work from there. They can work remotely now. Mm-hmm. So that's a win. Yeah. Um, and um, some other things that were an absolute win for Russia is when the sanctions, the, the, the EU imposed sanctions on Russia in, in, in 2014, uh, Russia imposed counter sanctions on, 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 on food exports from the European Union. And this has given a huge boost to Russia's agricultural producers so that Russia is now an agricultural superpower. It's the main grain largest grain exporter in the world. It basically, it, it'll end up feeding half the planet pretty soon. So these are all extreme positives, and, and Russia is a prosperous and stable country. And producing their own, their own things, manufacturing again. And this is, of course, what the United States gave up when it uh, decided to become, uh, decided to, to do what it did with the dollar and so forth. Well, that's, that's very interesting. And, you know, I mean, another thing I'd like to ask you about, we don't have time, but certainly what Russia would look like post-Putin and, and all of that, but maybe some other time if we can get you on. Just uh, with a couple minutes left here yet, Dimitri, um, you know, one of the, recently I've heard you talk about the, um, uh, what's going on in America, the demolition of the family, uh, morality, you, you know, you alluded to it when you talked about social uh, problems that we're having here now. Um, we seem to have, uh, you know, during this, during the USSR, of course, the, the Christian religion was, uh, was persecuted as in, I think, in most totalitarian nations, that's what happens because government... It wasn't. It wasn't. That's a fake. That, that is a, okay, so you're, that was part of the propaganda we were given then. So you're saying that the church, the, the Orthodox Church, was free to operate uh, during the Soviet days? It was. Okay. Well, my, my impression is that it's alive and well now. It is definitely alive and well now, doing better than ever. And, uh, and the thing that people don't appreciate uh, is the fact that Stalin was a seminarian. And as, as soon as he got the excuse, um, which is, was the beginning of World War II, he reopened the churches. No. Oh. Well, I mean, that's, that's really news to, to us here in the U.S., I guess. Uh, but, but in any event, the church is alive and well now. To what extent do you think that is helping uh, Russian society. I mean, you, you talk about the family, and to me, we've got here Black Lives Matter and Antifa. Uh, they're openly against the, the traditional family of a mother and a father and so forth, and they're openly against uh, the Christian religion here in the United States. Um, so to, to, to what extent do you believe that's an important aspect of a society, to have a common view of what, of what is right and what is wrong? Well, you know, there's, um, it's not just religion. It's, it's kind of, uh, it has to do with how nature works, human nature, what is, what is natural. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you ignore nature, then you go extinct. That's how nature deals with it. It's, it's just uh, basically, uh, it's not a problem that any of us have to solve because Charles Darwin will solve it for us. Mm-hmm. So all of these Antifa types that are anti-family will find, they won't be around in another generation. Mm-hmm. They'll just age out and... Leave no trace. All right, just one other thing then um, before we let you go, because we are basically out of time, but y- you, um, you know, you, one of the things that you did and, and you've written about is how to prepare for, for times when they become difficult. First of all, what do you think, how do you think the U.S. landscape may look like? I mean, nobody knows for sure, I guess, but, but just looking and projecting what you see now in the U.S., where you lived until just recently, what do you see for the U.S.? And then, 
And then what should people do? How should we all be preparing to deal with it? Well, I don't see much of much hope for uh, anything beyond the county level in in, in the uh, in the United States. Uh, I think c- cities will be incredibly unsafe. I think it'll all have to do with uh, becoming sufficiently uh, rural and and sufficiently self-sufficient uh, in order to ride it out. Um, there won't be much of an official structure to rely on, um, and. Uh, you know, the, the 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 more mixed up a community is, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis on on integration and ex- inclusion, et cetera. That's not going to be helpful moving forward because people have to uh, recognize each other. They they have to not deal with strangers. They have to avoid having to deal with strangers. So that's going to be a, a dominant in in America moving forward. It'll it'll basically splinter in. Society will splinter into small groups, and the only ones that will hold together will be the more cohesive and homogenous ones. I know in our previous discussion you had suggested that America might split up into different countries, but you're suggesting even smaller, uh, even smaller political groups than that, the county level. Yes, I think the county level is about the right level at which um, politics is not a complete waste of time. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it uh, go at that, Dimitri. I want to thank you so much for spending your time with us. It's, it's very, very helpful to our listeners, I'm sure. Uh, and all the best to you and your family there in Russia. And it's, it's very interesting to hear some uh, some things we haven't heard before about Russia. So it's uh, thank you so well, much. Well, I'm glad. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you, Dimitri, for being with us. Well, folks, that is all for this week. Next week, Alistair McLeod will be with me. And I'll also be speaking with Ian Klaassen, the president and CEO of GMV Minerals. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.